0: All right, church, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be most of this morning, Matthew chapter 6. I want to welcome all of you to Sycamore View today. I see first-time guests. I see other guests. I see new members, long-time members. Thank you for all of you who are joining us online today. We're grateful that we have this avenue where we can stay connected with you and you can stay connected with us. C.S. Lewis had a personal secretary. His name was Walter Hooper. And Walter Hooper once described C.S. Lewis this way. So we're talking about this great author, the creator of Narnia. And he described C.S. Lewis this way, that he was the most thoroughly converted person he had ever met. That's how he described him. Now, C.S. Lewis had plenty of imperfections. But that so much of his life had been inhabited by Christ, and not only had it been inhabited by Christ, other people were able to see how there were parts of his life, a lot of his life, had been inhabited by Christ. John Eldridge, in his latest book that he wrote, he made this one statement. It's just kind of a challenge to people. Convert the unconverted places in yourself. So when it comes to conversion, we have conversion moments where we have these moments of salvation where we move from lost to found or unsaved to saved, yet there are still parts of us that still need to be converted to Christ. Because the world comes after us, comes after our hearts, all these distractions come our way, and, and there are times where we need to think, what are the places in me that have not been given over, that are not that I am not allowing to be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus? So, when I say things like that to you, like, hey, what part, parts of your life have not been surrendered to Christ, or what in your life hasn't been converted to Christ, do you imagine when I say that, a God who is, like, pushing you, a God who is always challenging you, a God who is saying, hey, you just need to try a little harder in your life, because sometimes when i make those statements I think that may be how you receive it because you've had moms and dads and you've had guardians and you've had coaches or maybe bosses in your life that that's the way they've always treated you you need to try a little harder and if you try a little harder then then maybe blessings will come from it and and more than seeing a God who is pushing you or challenging you or you just need to try a little harder take more seriously those unconverted places I want you to imagine a loving gracious God who is always inviting you into a deeper place not just shouting at you to do better and try harder, but just inviting you to look more and more like Christ in your life. Notice on the screen, here's the verse, and I'm going to come back to this verse multiple times this morning, and I'm going to say here just for a moment, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. and this is right up there, with those of you who've been in church very long in your life, next to John 3:16, and maybe Philippians 4:13, like this is one of those verses a lot of people know when you could quote, "But B-U-T, some of your versions have therefore seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And I want you just like you can almost pick like look at this and and look word by word of the meaning behind each one like seek first is not just seek the kingdom of God among all these other kingdoms and you notice it's both Jesus's kingdom and Jesus's righteousness that we're supposed to seek. And if you circle in your Bible, the but or the therefore, we'll come back to that in just a little while because it's connecting it to what he has just been talking about. But this word seek in the Greek, and I want you to see this if you go to that next slide. This word seek is to look for in order to find. So i don 't want you to like i don't want you to think about matthew six thirty three that you're just like looking out the window seeing out there if you see the kingdom like this is you're, you're putting you're setting your eyes on something and then when you see it like you're claiming it clinging to it you're moving toward it it's to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective so i'm going to keep coming back to matthew six thirty three today because above any other kingdom in this world or anything else in this world, what Jesus says is seek first his kingdom. Not just seek his kingdom among all these other kingdoms. You seek first his kingdom and you seek first his righteousness. So the series we're in right now, I've, I've called it chorology. Just talking about the core of who we are. And some of what I'm talking about is how we navigate Culture wars without losing our soul. And I'm not, the next few weeks, I'm not talking so much about issues that get, that force us to get caught up in culture wars. I'm talking about biblical Christian principles that root us in who Jesus is so that we can have an impact in the world. And that's why I talk about these things, because I believe so much in how Jesus believes about Christ's followers, and how Jesus believes about Christians, and what Jesus intends for the church is that we don't become a country club. We aren't people who shrink back. We are a force in the world. Therefore, we need to be able to navigate things that are happening in culture for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of shining the light of God everywhere we go. So these things matter. And last week, I talked a little bit about the core, just the core of your body, like your, your body makeup, how God created you is your core is what connects the upper body to the lower body. And having a stronger, better, healthier core can help you with balance and mobility, and it can help you with uh, avoiding some lower back pain. It can make a lot of your life better. Now, in this sermon series, I'm, doing, uh, I, I, I'm not trying to create a bunch of six-packs out of Sycamore View members. We're not having to do five minutes of planks before we go to take the bread and the cup every Sunday. We're not going to be asking the church to do burpees as Kip is leading us in worship every day. That's, but, but I do want you to think about the core. Just that core, the center of who you are. And a few things I stated last week is why I think this is so important for us, especially when it comes to engaging cultures. I don't want us to confuse where our allegiance lies. I don't want to create enemies that are not enemies of God. I don't want us to lose our witness. And a strong core helps us keep our center, have good balance, and have a meaningful witness in the world. Because we live in a time where we live in cancel culture. There's nothing that people won't cancel in America. We'll cancel Starbucks at Christmas time. Because they, they don't say the word Christmas. We will cancel Chick-fil-A because they made a statement about traditional marriage. We will cancel NBA All-Star Games. We'll cancel the NFL. We'll cancel churches. We'll cancel pastors. We'll cancel comedians. We will cancel. Cancel if we have to. I mean, we will, we'll cancel Disney Plus, but we will not cancel Disney World because we have our priorities straight. Am I right? I mean, nothing we won't cancel. And culture wars are all around us, and you may try to avoid them, but they find us, and you hear about them, and it's coming for us on social media, and in the news, and sometimes in churches, like we just get caught up in so many culture wars. It's all around us. And if there are things you're super passionate about, one thing I asked last week, one thing I stated last week, there, there are things that we're super passionate about, and if it feels like there are culture wars you find yourself in on certain issues, and it feels like there is a loss... Do you believe that the kingdom of God can still advance in the world? For the kingdom of God is not waiting on us to sort out every issue. In order for the kingdom of God to advance, God's kingdom has an agenda and it is moving and it has made it for 2,000 years and it will continue to make it in the future no matter no matter what happens with issues or what matters with culture wars. That's why I think this matters. I want to talk just a moment about immunity this morning and your immune system, and I'm no immune system expert, but I know in your immune system, I know that... um, I mean, a few things I've learned. I mean, I know your immune system, It's it's uh, it, it understands what microbes are. When microbes come into your body and they infect your body, God has created our body to have the ability to store a record of the microbes that have come into our bodies to infect us, and it has stored a record so when those microbes come into our bodies in the future, it can detect them and know what they are so that it knows how to fight them. God has done a wonderful job in creating the body. I know your immune system is made up of two different systems. You have your innate immune system, which you were born with, and you have your adaptive immune system, which your body develops as you age. So if you have an innate immune system and, and you have some weaknesses, you can blame your mom and dad. If your adaptive immune system has some weaknesses, you can blame Memphis Seasons of the Year. Am I right? And when your body has a fever, it's actually your immune system working to get rid of something in your body. It can be a really good thing. And for those of you who, and for me right now, you got like itchy eyes and itchy throat and allergies are getting the best of you. Um, It's your immune system that's working in overdrive. It's overactivity. So I mentioned a few of these things not to like try to tell you or teach you about your immune system, but just to ask the question this morning. How are you strengthening your soul's immune system? How are you strengthening the immune system in your soul to defeat and to fight off all the junk and all the things that are coming at us? Because if we don't have an immune system to, to fight them all off, it can slowly begin to, to rot the soul. So last week I laid in front of you seven principles. And these seven principles are what I'm talking about over the next few weeks seven principles rooted in the life, character and nature of Christ. And I know it's really small on the screen. I've posted these on social media, but I'm, I'm trying to, just to keep them all on, on one screen together. The first one was this: that I will daily confess that Jesus is the Lord of my life and nothing else is. Number two, I will create and honor regular spiritual practices that remind me of my devotion to Jesus. Number three, I will choose to become a better listener to God and other people. Number four, I will resist to allow any immediate outlet to become the primary way I think about culture and the world. Number five, I will strive to become a peacemaker. Number six, I will practice hospitality as a way to learn, grow, and invest in other people. And number seven, I will choose to regularly serve others. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33, it says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. And before I go any further, where are my worry warts? Where are my worry people in the house? Anybody? All right, you got a few. You don't need to point fingers at other people. Here's the deal. In over 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had somebody who worries about everything come to me and say, you know what, Josh? I wish I worried more. Like, I've never had people you know, confess, I wish I worried a lot more than I do. And for those of you in which you worry, you find yourself worrying about a lot of things, I'm sure Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 is both a blessing and a curse to you. You love it, and then it's also so challenging, because you, you know it comes from the mouth of Jesus, like don't worry about things, and, you, and it calls you to radical trust, yet there's so many things in your life you care about. So here's what Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he, not much, how much, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And here it is, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And let's stay there just for a moment. No one else talked this kind of way. Like Jesus starts talking about worry, and then Jesus starts talking about the kingdom, which is something Jesus has already talked a lot about in the Gospel of Matthew, even though this is only chapter 6. People didn't talk this kind of way. Now, now here's, here's the thing, all right? I don't want to make out every time you see the word kingdom pop up in the words of Jesus or in the New Testament, I don't want you to think political connotations I don't think this, every time Jesus talks about the kingdom, it's making Jesus into a social activist, like he's trying to reverse or flip the empire or take a jab at the empire. But I, I will say this, I don't think you could hear, understand, or, or listen to Jesus talk about the kingdom without thinking about the kingdoms of the world, Romans empire, uh, uh, Herod's empire, like those things were just, they were entrenched in your mind. You saw it everywhere you went. So it's not that Jesus is trying to like fight against all these other empires, but when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, Jesus is trying to align people with the kingdom of God above every other kingdom that is out there. And no one else would have talked like this. I want you to notice, and and I'm just going to stick in the Gospel of Matthew for a moment, I want you to see how things of the kingdom started all the way back with John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John the Baptist knows that there's a Messiah coming into the world, and he is coming to talk about and to bring in a different kind of kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's the theme of his preaching in all these synagogues, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is how the Beatitudes start. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, it's our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you see in verse 25 and verse 33, when Jesus says, do not worry, what he ends up combating that with, like if you want to be better about not worrying in your life, verse 33, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like this is what arms you and prepares you not to be taken out by worry and anxiety in your life. This word worry... It's to be apprehensive, it's to have anxiety, it's to be anxious. It's the same word that you find in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when Paul starts writing about don't be anxious about anything, it's the same exact word. So there are a lot of reasons in our world to, to worry. The Chapman, uh, Chapman University Survey of American Fears, uh, and, and they've been around for about a decade and what they do is they try to use data and they do research of Americans throughout the entire year and they try to gauge what Americans worry about and what are our greatest fear. And now for a decade, once a year, they release a top 10 list. So what they're looking at is what do Americans worry about? What, are, what, what terrifies Americans? And every year they come out with a list and it changes a little bit every year. So here you go. It's a top 10 list. We'll stop with, start with 10. We'll work down to number one. The first thing, is biological warfare. See if you agree with any of these. Number nine is pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Number eight is economic and financial collapse. Number seven is similar to number eight, not having enough money for the future. Number six, pollution of drinking water. Sounds a lot like number nine. Number five, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war. Number four is people I love dying. So it gets kind of personal with number four, and again, in number two. But number three is this, Russia using nuclear weapons. Number two, people I love becoming seriously ill. And can I get a drum roll from anybody? It's okay. It's, it's not making an instrument in church, all right? Just a little drum roll, all right? Number one, corrupt government officials. Top ten things of the past year that they've found that strike fear and that make Americans worry. It terrifies us. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it's seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Of all things Jesus could have said, he could have said, seek first my heart, or seek first my truth, or seek first like the face of God. And of all things for Jesus to choose in verse 33, it's seek first his kingdom The word kingdom shows up around 160 times in the New Testament alone. One person says it like this, tries to describe the kingdom of God and how Jesus talks about the kingdom like this. In his world, Jesus' world, kingdom language was political. Jesus' hearers knew about other kingdoms. The kingdom of Herod, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of God had to be something different from those kingdoms. The kingdom of God is for the earth. The Lord's Prayer speaks of God's kingdom coming on earth even as it already exists in heaven. It is about the transformation of the world, what life will be on earth if God were ruler and the lords of the domination systems were not. To seek first the kingdom Jesus taught about And to seek first the kingdom Jesus taught us to pray for, it realigns everything in us. And we never have to guess who the king is in the kingdom of God. For there's no four year term or two year term when it comes to the king of the kingdom of God. When it comes to our king, he's not interested in campaigning for dollars or campaigning for attention or campaigning for affection. He doesn't debate people in order to defeat people. His movement is ongoing and everlasting. He always reaches across the aisle. He sits with people and eats with people who believe differently than he does. And for Christians, we must always remember that you can't have King Jesus without also taking on the characteristics of the kingdom And you can't have the benefits of the kingdom without surrendering to King Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 33, it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this isn't just some cute verse, but this is a change in direction and perspective. It's a foundation, not just a life raft. So what does it mean for us to have kingdom hearts in which our allegiance above everything is for the kingdom of God? All right, so here's what I'm about to do. I'm going to create two arguments, and in a way, I think they're going to oppose each other, and we're just going to see how this goes. All right. And in, and before I create the two arguments, help me out with the probably the most known verse in the entire Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved, for God so loved the world. Not just for God so loved an individual, or for God so loved a family, or a nation. For God so loved the entire world. So argument number one is this: Every four years, we elect a new president. Every few years, we elect senators, we elect people for Congress, Like we elect them. And every year, the, the side who wins usually has around 70 million people who vote for them. Now, I know even with 70 million, we have people who believe in voters fraud, and we have electoral college, take a deep breath and just, hey, we're just working with 70 million, all right? It's right around 70 million. That's a lot of people. 70 million people who vote for a candidate or representatives to help lead a nation. 70 million in a world of 8 billion. So in a world of around 8 billion people, 70 million people vote like Republicans or Democrats. I know some of you vote for independents. Some of you write in uh, your names of maybe your name. I don't, I don't know. We're around 70 million so 0.008 people in the world vote the same way you do. In this verse that we claim, for God so loved the entire world, everybody. So one argument is this. All of us have that one relative, and you know who they are. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every get-together, they are the ones who, I mean, they are, they are behind their political conviction, and they believe that based on how an election turns out, like it's not just the world may fall, it's that God may not know what to do. Like God is behind my party, God is for me, and if you don't know who the relative is in your family, what, what, how does the saying go? You probably are that person, right? Right? So one argument is this, like God is not waiting on an election in the United States of America to determine how the kingdom of God is going to work for the other 8 billion people throughout the world. God is doing things that are not based on what is happening with our politics. So that's one argument. Like maybe some people shouldn't care as much, all right? Now, I think all of you in here, you listen online, like you would hear me and you would agree with that. Okay, we get that. God loves the entire world. There's no one in the world we don't want to save. You get it. So here's argument number two. The United States of America has so much power and influence and resources to be stewarded. So much. And based on how the United States of America stewards power and influence and resources, this whether good or bad, hopefully good, I mean, this impacts billions of people it impacts a lot of people and we the people and and this is one of the beautiful things about democracy is that we the people we have a say and we have a vote and we can say things and not be put in prison for it like we the people we are allowed to be passionate about things and be like have issues that we really care about And we should care about how laws are made and on how laws are kept. And we should care about how policies are formed and how policies are implemented because how laws and policies go in the United States, it blesses so many people. It blesses the poor in our city. It blesses the rich in our city and throughout the U.S., It does something when it comes to just foreign policy. It has something to say about the oldest generation, the the young, the unborn. It has something to say from different, it has something for people from different ethnicities. So when it comes to policies and issues, like we should care because it matters and it blesses the world and it blesses people. So that's argument number two, is that there's 70 million people or 100 plus million people who vote for certain things, but it doesn't just impact 100 million or so or the 350, million living in the U.S., it can bless so many people in the world. And here's one thing you will never hear me say. And maybe I've said this in the past, and if I have, I would, I would, I would say it differently now like I'm about to. You will never hear me say that you should not be passionate about politics or about issues. And you should only be passionate about Jesus. You will never hear me say that. Because I believe the gospel impacts everything. What you will hear me say is that Jesus did not die to become a mascot that we occasionally just use to be the rallying cry behind an issue that we're passionate about. And that Jesus didn't die to be something that we fall back on in life. Jesus died to become the foundation, not just of your life, but of your daily life. Not just how we pray about certain things in the world, but how we begin each day choosing to devote ourselves to Jesus above all things. So I hope that the legacy I leave for my children, and even the legacy I leave in my leadership, would be one that I want to live my life with God, that I try to open a lot more doors and draw a lot less battle lines. That I want to invite a lot of people to the tables where I get to sit. And I want to do that so much better than I draw battle lines in life. And to do this in a way where I want to honor both the truth and the grace that Jesus honored while he lived. So, my question for you today is not just are you devoted to Christ, but it's how are you devoted to Christ? It's not just are you devoted, yes or no, but if somebody were to ask, talk to me about your devotion to Jesus. What does it look like? How would you articulate that devotion? Now, I I know some of you have Bible reading plans, and and you're following them, and I'm not trying to throw you off course at all. And some of you, you would love for somebody to place in front of you a plan that could just get you in the Bible, because it can be an intimidating book, especially for those of you who haven't spent much time in it. And I want to show you just on a slide, because I do think it's important, especially as we enter into another presidential election season, and you're going to have a lot of of things and culture wars that are just coming after us, that we are, to be devoted to Christ, you have to spend time with Christ. And I'll break it down for you real easy. There are 89 chapters in the Gospels, 28 chapters in Matthew, 16 in Mark, 24 in Luke, 21 in John, 89 chapters. If you decided to read three chapters of the Gospels a day, you get to read all four Gospels in a year. And I have made this commitment in some years where I will try to read the Gospels 12 times in a year. If you choose to read one chapter in the Gospels a day, within just a few months, you get all the Gospels. And I'm working right now on a teaching calendar for the year 2024 for next year. that For 52 weeks, we're gonna be in the Gospels from beginning to end, just immersing ourselves in the life and teachings of, of, of who Christ is. And in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus invites his first followers, what happens in verse 14, and you'll see this. It says he appointed 12, That the very first thing, that he might be with them. What Jesus wants more than anything when it comes to devotion, it's not just that you're standing for Christian things, it's that you are making commitment to be with the Savior of the world, that you are making commitments to be with King Jesus. Eugene Cho in his book, he says this, he says, in our culture, speaking up has often been praised as courageous. And there's certainly some truth to that, but maybe quieting down and listening to others is courageous too. And I would add that one of the most courageous things we can do is to be with God. Make commitments to be with God. Um, <clears throat> a phrase that shows up some in the Bible is this phrase, innermost being. Like the, in- the core, like deep inside of you, this is what God is trying to form and cultivate. In Psalm 103, verse 1, it says, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Like everything I am is praising you. In John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39, it said, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from his inmost being. Jesus died a courageous death so that we will live courageously in his kingdom above everything. And today, as we come to the table, the bread and the cup, think about a couple of things. What are the places in you that need to be converted to Christ? And as you take the bread and the cup, be reminded of Jesus' devotion and ask yourself, how am I living out my devotion to Christ? And we'll have a shepherd up front and a shepherd in the back to receive you. And a couple of the female prayer leaders were not able to make it. They texted me this morning. So if any of the uh, prayer leaders, if uh, if you're in the room, if you want to go by the exit signs, just to receive people, And we're here to pray with you. Pray prayers of devotion. Pray prayers that you may have in your life that we need to pray. And if there's anything you need to bring before this church, we have an elder to my right who will be here to receive you in the next few moments. And I want Ephesians chapter 3 just to stay on the screen as you take the bread and the cup. And I want this to be a blessing over you today. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I pray that out of his glorious riches... that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So Jesus, for the bread and the cup that we get to take today, that reminds us of your sacrifice, of your allegiance to us and your allegiance to the world, may this be a moment that we declare and redeclare our allegiance to you. And may the faith we confess in this moment that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, may that faith be lived out in all that we do this week. Through Christ we pray, amen.